Hi, everybody. My name is Michael Millerman, and this is a special audio-only version of Millerman Talks. I would like to read to you something I wrote on Bronze Age Perverts Underground Hit Bronze Age Mindset. Some of you might know about it and have heard about it. I had a chance to read it and to put my thoughts on paper, give you a little bit of an argument about what he thinks is decisive and how we should make sense of his argument. I just want you to know that the paper itself is available on michaelmillerman.ca, and there you'll see all of the page numbers for the quotations and the other things that I'm referring to that I couldn't really say each time, page 106, page 192. But if you want to know the source in the uh, primary text, you can go to michaelmillerman.ca and grab the document there. Also, please make sure to sign up for my YouTube channel where you can see my videos on Strauss, Heidegger, Dugan, and other thinkers. And if you'd like to support my work, there's now an option to donate at michaelmillerman.ca. So without further ado, my review of Bronze Age Mindset. Bronze Age Mindset, a book on fire. The subtitle of Bronze Age Mindset is an exhortation, as you can see from the title page of the book. On the facing page is the epigraph, Victory to the Gods. The initial impression conveyed by the book clusters around what we can call the militant, victory, and the divine, the gods. The book is meant to exhort you toward those things and away from their rejection or inversion, the weak and the secular. The dedication of the book attests to these two focal points. The dedicatee is praised as a spiritual brother, a giant of high vision, and a man of superhuman physical strength. The author, Bronze Age Pervert, looks forward to a time when he and his departed friend can meet and fight together again. Spirituality, high vision, and the superhuman accord with the divine. Brotherhood, being a giant and pure strength, accord with the militant. The hope stretched past this life to the next refers to the original belief of every society or tribe, reincarnation, the topic of a section that also mentions brotherhoods of savage men, purifiers. The relationship between the militant and the divine amounts to the divinization of militancy and the militarization of divinity. A man is superhuman when his strength and fighting ability are. His fighting ability is superhuman when his vision and spirituality are. There are not two things in man, the rational and the animal, that each strive for perfection. There is only one thing, the body. You are your body, and there is no you aside from this, as he writes. But we do not understand the body. It's an approximation of the primal, almighty will. The body, like everything else, possesses an inherent intelligence, which can penetrate the mystery of nature and uncover the truth about human nature. The present world, as BAP, or Bronze Age pervert, says in the dedication, cannot bear superhuman strength or the combination divinized militancy and militarized divinity. Those of superhuman strength must leave the world or remake it. In the worst case, as young men, they misunderstand the social suffocation of their strength, wrongly interpreting it as sexual repression and becoming gay. In doing so, they make peace with the power that when younger they intuited to be the enemy, the great and suffocating shadow of our time, the enclosing and imprisoning of man in owned space. The gay person then becomes, quoting, the spiritual foot soldier of the regime when he's born to be its enemy, 
Becoming gay, therefore, means reconciling oneself to a state of affairs that does not permit superhuman strength. Accordingly, the phenomenon of homosexuality in the modern world, as he writes, reaches up to the most profound of political and social problems, the problem of the managed underworld. It was once a place for the free play of that which could not be integrated by the state, but was co-opted by the language of gay rights and gay identity, such that gays became, as he writes, the worst and most merciless enforcers of the global slave state. It's too bad the underworld has been claimed. BAP has a special attraction to filth and dirt, whores and junkie, perverts and worse, his words, and he does not want to purify that world. The target of the book's analysis in this section is not gay people, though BAP has been talking about them. Quote, not all gays are of this origin, and of course not all higher types become gay. The point is that all higher types in our time risk making the error of misinterpreting their strength and inadvertently aligning with the forces that distort it. This exhortation, then, is an exhortation to higher types or potential higher types not to leave the world or adjust to it by, quote-unquote, becoming gay in a broad sense beyond sexuality, but instead to understand and embrace the truth about human nature and the truth about life as it really is, as he writes. What do we call a book that helps you understand the truth about human nature and that answers the question about what life really is and what life means? A book of philosophy. But the first words of this book say, this is not a book of philosophy. It is exhortation. How should we understand this contradiction? Philosophy and exhortation are not incompatible. Heidegger, whom the author mentions, believes that philosophy today can only be exhortation. However, Heidegger distinguishes between two kinds of exhortation. One is an exhortation to become Dasein, the open place, Da, or localization, of the temporalization of being, the place where being is as time. The other exhortation does not aim to transform man into Dasein through genuine appropriation out of the grounds of our existence, but rather understands him metaphysically as will and life, urging him towards overcoming himself in the direction of more will and more life, like Bap does. Bap believes that most of the followers of Heidegger are wrong, as he writes. That implies that some of the followers of Heidegger are not wrong. And I think Bap is right that there's a coherent Heideggerian reading of his own project. But most of the followers of Heidegger are wrong, he says, when they insist that Quoting, every adherence to an external code, religion, or ideology is inauthentic and represents essentially a form of mind control. BAP sees at least some systems of control as healthy. The followers of Heidegger, he continues, and Heidegger himself to a great degree, all forget that the fundamental fact of nature is inequality, whereas Nietzsche did not forget that fact. Heidegger, though, appreciated and acknowledged the philosophical significance of Nietzsche's anti-egalitarian and hierarchical position. He departs from Nietzsche by teaching that the question of hierarchy is a transitional question, which can become the question of truth as the primordial question regarding the essence of what is true. That's from Contributions to Philosophy of the Event. Before proceeding further in our analysis, I think it will be helpful to compare what Bapp and Heidegger each regard as the decisive issue for rescuing contemporary humanity from its lamentable state. Let's start with Heidegger. 
the easiest way to understand Heidegger's position is to draw a distinction between three terms. Being with a Y, which I'll explain in a moment, that's B-E-Y-N-G, or in German, S-E-Y-N. Being with an I, that's S-E-I-N in German, just the regular being in English, and beings. Heidegger calls the entire history of philosophy, from the pre-Socratics to Nietzsche, in all its stages, phases, and transformations, metaphysics. What characterizes metaphysics, on Heidegger's account, is that it is guided by the question, what are beings? And when it discusses being, with an I, it is thinking about being as something that helps to answer that other question. Being might then be understood as that which makes beings what they are, or as that which is most common to them, or even as that which created them, if the creator God is interpreted as the highest being. The main point is that beings are the center of attention, and being is understood derivatively, and really for their sake. It is in light of this ontological difference, as he calls it, between beings and being, that man has come to interpret himself. Heidegger believes, and arguably demonstrates, that Christianity, anti-Christianity, right, left, liberalism, communism, Nazism, fascism, and all other isms or worldviews, however much they might seem to be opposed to one another, share as, as their common root a metaphysical interpretation of being itself, and therefore of the human being, reflected, for instance, by the language of values, ideals, and culture. Heidegger writes that talk of values, ideals, and culture all stem from a shared metaphysical root. And that metaphysical root is the source of our problems. There's nothing that can help us which does not address the possibility of overcoming it. Heidegger calls the philosophy that overcomes metaphysics inceptual thinking, or the philosophy of another beginning. The way that inceptual thinking overcomes metaphysics is as follows. It leaps over the ontological difference between beings and being, with an I, which has become an impossible constraint, and it does so leaping directly into the question of the truth of being with a Y. Being with a Y, that's an archaic spelling of the usual spelling of being. Heidegger uses it to distinguish what he's aiming at from the usual traditional metaphysical notion of being, which to repeat is for him always somehow derivative from beings. The question is, can we think about being without starting from beings? And because Heidegger believes we can, to indicate it, he uses that other spelling. Because this is not a disquisition on Heidegger, I want to spare you the full details of how he understands that philosophical project in order to emphasize just this one thing. The question whether we continue to interpret ourselves and the world metaphysically or undergo an epochal and fundamental transformation of ourselves and of our questioning by opening ourselves up to what he calls the truth of being with a Y is for Heidegger the decisive issue. Everything is affected by that decision and nothing which avoids it can answer the fundamental questions about our future. Heidegger once infamously said that World War II decided nothing. You might think that is a scandalous and incompetent assessment of the war. But Heidegger meant that from the perspective of the fate of man's essential dwelling on earth, when it comes to the deepest aspects of our philosophical self-understanding, all the crucial questions were deferred, or rather everyone remained oblivious to them altogether. Whereas everything hinges 
on whether or not metaphysics is overcome. The meaning of our language, our relationship towards the divine, nature, art, history, politics, beauty, everything is implicated in the one all-important decision. Heidegger's view is not that this is something we can decide for ourselves. Being with the why, the true ground of existence, which we have gradually forgotten over our history, or as he also says, which has abandoned us, either conclusively withdraws itself, that's the continuation and absolutization of metaphysics, or else we're able to turn our attention to the fact of its having withdrawn and see that refusal as an enticement into a new set of questions, questions about the truth of being itself. This decision, which we can at best expose ourselves to, but which we can't force or control, calculate or manipulate, does not culminate immediately in publicly visible events. Heidegger talks a lot about silence, reticence, and patience. Yet, as is implied by the statement that everything hinges on it, it does have the potential to reconfigure everything about our public lives and political orders eventually. For Heidegger, it's putting the cart before the horse to try to do something politically if you're just reproducing the metaphysical modes that have brought us to where we are. The solution is philosophical. The philosophy is an exhortation, overcome metaphysics, and the exhortation is, as he puts it, for the few, for the rare. What then is the decisive issue for Bap in his exhortation? He speaks about our eternal task, which already differentiates him from Heidegger, for whom the problem of inceptual thinking comes precisely at the end of metaphysics and is thus historical. Unlike Heidegger, who sees modernity historically as that period inaugurated by the specific interpretation of the human being as self-conscious self-certainty, the human being as representing the world to himself and becoming certain of himself, Bap, like Alexander Dugan, sees modernity structurally, not historically, but structurally. There has always been modernity as a possible way of life, and it has always been at war with other ways of life. In his book on the wars of the intellect, Noamachia, Dugan talks about three logoi, the Apollonian, the Dionysian, and the Sibelian, identifying the basic structures of modernity with the Sibelian logos, the logos of the cult of the Great Mother. Bap also talks about the matriarchy of the Great Earth Mother and about Sibylle and the insane priests of her cult who engaged in self-castration, a point Dugan also makes much of. And if you look online, on my YouTube channel, you'll see the fourth session of my introduction to Noomachia goes over Sibylle and the meaning of castration for, um, for Dugan's analysis. The forces that wage war against will and life are variously characterized in BAP as the society of the grass hut, gynocracy, earth mammies, yeast life, mirror life, and sinkholes. BAP connects the worship of the titanic powers of the earth, of the great mother, his words, to matriarchy, and denies that it represents a kind of liberation from the strictures of modern civilization. In fact, what is hateful about modernity, he writes, is precisely its Sibelian character. Everything that you hate about modern life, and that makes it into an iron prison, and I agree it is a prison, this is Bap, 
represents a return to the endless sallow night of matriarchy, to the titanic hatred for the higher gods. Modernity is thus an eternally possible structure in the eternal noomachia, to use Dugan's terminology. What is decisive for BAP is to reject the Great Mother and to ascend by coming out on the other side of what he calls the mission of the Great Downgoing. You should know that in Nietzsche and in Heidegger, there's a philosophical and a somehow exalted sense of the mission of the Great Downgoing, whereas BAP characterizes it as the mission of descending to the criminal underworld to sow total confusion in the heart of the beast. But at any rate, the alternative is on one hand between the great mother of yeast and the true man. The alternative to the great mother of the yeast is the true man. The true man has a single-minded purpose. His thirst for space is boundless, and he's never-endingly quenching it through acts of bravery and daring. His courage is without limits, and his carelessness and cruelty too, all signs of his excess of being. The true man must know how to listen to the voice of the gods. He cultivates an exalted psychosis and allows himself to be entirely possessed by a divine madness. In the genuine exaltation of the true man, when the will attains great heights, time itself entirely changes. The true man is given the gift of heightened perception and can see things others can't. His force of personality and power of character and body exert a magical, magnetic effect on others. The true man can wish to be worshipped as a god because he has become the bearer of a godly charisma. He is motivated by the unlearnable desire behind all great things, namely the tyrannical desire to expand the domain of struggle for self-perfection into every area of social life. Self-perfection cannot be limited to the isolated bodily self or psychological self or inner self. The self-perfecting self is an outwardly conquering self-overcoming. The true man is a living work of art. That does not mean he becomes an artist in the narrow sense or that any one of a large number of ways of life are worthy of him. He's a man of leisure whose leisure is not primarily for the sake of culture, but for war, and whose war is not primarily for the sake of principles, but for freedom and power. There are only very few potential true men. They are the standard. These men are propelled forward by the life force to conquer open spaces in a state of divine carelessness or abandon. This force is a demonic fire, a chaos of joy and destruction. Access to this fire is not through a doctrine of traditionalism, which can stunt life. How, Bap asks, can the secret and hidden and precious things be about doctrine and just more talking? Rather, one must receive the old spirit of demoniac and violent madness and put an end to the sanity of the secular scientific man. The true man, insofar as he's a man of genius, is inspired by our natural religious intoxication to a sudden grasp of ideas in acts of creative discovery. The true man is beautiful because in his abandon to the primal and primordial will, he is himself a form of will whose energy is structure. 
His beautiful body has therefore cosmic significance. As the pinnacle of nature, it is a window to the other side. But do not forget that intellect is also will, and that as rare as even beautiful bodies are, Bap's words, the mind in the same condition is even more rare. Physical beauty, he writes, is the foundation for a true higher culture of the mind and spirit as well. At the opposite pole of the worst enemy of the human race is, quote, the philosopher, unquote. The true man has the inner energy and power to honor and to do the bidding of a god who might show himself, whereas no god would show himself to weak and spineless modern man. Heidegger, if you'll recall, said that we have been abandoned by being with a Y, or that we've forgotten it. Bapp writes that we have been abandoned by the gods. There's a connection in Heidegger between being with a Y and the gods. The possibility of the return of the gods is premised on whether or not the few and the rare among human beings dare to become docile through a self-surpassing questioning of the compelling truth or ground of being with a Y. Doing so does not guarantee a return of the gods. It only creates the space where the gods themselves decide whether to come or stay away. Bap also cannot guarantee a return of the gods, but he would like to bring some among his readers into a condition where a god could show himself and could be honored and followed. The precondition is a clean break with the cult of the great mother of yeast and submission to possession by the fire that is the essence of all things and all action, his words. We had been saying that according to its author, this book is not a philosophy book, but an exhortation. And yet, in as much as it expressly aims at a true understanding of man and life, it did seem at first to be concerned with philosophical questions, and therefore to be a philosophy book. Then Heidegger reminded us that philosophy too can be exhortation. This book could be a book of philosophical exhortation in the guise of unphilosophical exhortation. It would not be the first such book, and Bapp himself refers to other such books in his book, which also teaches readers to wear a disguise. Fundamentally, I think there are three ways to read this book. The first way is to follow Bapp. That means to adopt his vision, however you understand it, as your own. Life, freedom, strength, the struggle for space, self-overcoming, force, possession, abandon, all of that, or as much of it as you can bear. Maybe you stop at this advice. Don't be lame. Learn to make videos and photos. His words. Maybe you become a political prankster, as he writes. Or maybe you get some friends and, quote, never stop studying or working together. Presumably in all of this, you're doing what you can to, quote, discredit the enemy and expose his authoritarianism, his stupidity, his slavishness, and his corruption while finding your own way to embody and to worship fire. So that's one way to follow Bap. The second way is to acknowledge his influence, importance, and intelligence, but to wonder, as some insightful commentators have done, especially Michael Anton and Elijah Del Megiddo over at American Mind, where there are some good essays on this book, um, to wonder whether Bap's misunderstanding of the American founding or undervaluing of Socratic questioning into the nature of justice discredits his project. 
Who among East or West Coast Straussians, at the extremes, for instance, could endorse to themselves or to anyone else the desirability of the underworld frisson Bap describes when, on a late summer night, you're asked by a corrupt lawyer to spy on a Lebanese strip club owner, and you're out in the courtyard with a 20-year-old prosty, she put cocaine on your tongue, and you feel the ocean air at night fill you with the longing of the great sea. Well, that's not really a Straussian cup of tea, is it? So they might as well endorse Hakim Bey or Charles Bukowski. In general, the metaphysics of pimps, hookers, and thieves belongs somewhere else. I laughed, as anyone who has read this book probably laughed, at some of the jokes. My personal favorite was his commentary on Larry David's struggle against the oppression of the service industry. But beyond whatever compliments can be paid to the book and its author, this second way is absolutely compelled to transcend it in the direction of a more decent alternative, rightfully so. Now, the third way, neither an embrace nor a rejection of BAP's project, is the one that I tried to indicate earlier through my remarks on Heidegger. We are faced with the question, what is man? Or who is man? The more so if we have recoiled from the ugliness of what today can pass as man. Both BAP and his moderate Socratic and Straussian critics have something like an answer, but in both cases, it's premised, non-trivially, on a rejection of Heidegger. Heidegger saw Nietzsche as the final philosopher at the end of metaphysics. To the extent to which he's Nietzschean in spirit, as he's commonly and plausibly thought to be, Bapp presents us with the all-important question whether his project amounts to a continuation of the metaphysical understanding of man, itself for Heidegger the decisive obstacle to a genuine overcoming of our present distress. The Socratic and Straussian response, premised as it is on Strauss's supposed resolution of the conflict between nature and history, does not wage an adequate confrontation with Heidegger. Dugan, by the way, whose Eurasianism Bapp mentions in passing as one among a number of dork ideological constructs, his phrase, um, that his followers should not discuss in public, Dugan is worth putting into conversation with Bapp's project, not primarily because of their implicit dispute over traditionalism or their mutual sympathy for Nietzsche, but because while both of them understand modernity precisely and explicitly as an expression of the eternally possible rule of Sibylle, they fall on opposite sides of the crucial philosophical question concerning Heidegger's significance. Bapism is winning, wrote Michael Anton in his review of Bronze Age Mindset. It is a matter of the utmost importance to understand as clearly as possible, from the broadest perspective, whether his victory, if it is one, decides anything essential about man's fate on earth. Perhaps even the true man cannot again encounter the gods who still flee from our metaphysics, awaiting the moment when not the fire of life, but the fire of the hearth of being beckons them on, a well-guarded fire that cannot burn without the philosophizing of those who submit themselves to the compelling sovereignty of the most question-worthy truth. There's more to this book than what I've indicated. By far the least interesting and least relevant aspect of the book is its grammar. That is almost all I'd heard about it in preparing to read it. And you probably know some of the baptisms and some of the um, spellings and 
grammatical mistakes that are associated with him. Well, forget all of that. I wouldn't bother trying to find a deeper meaning in it. It's barely even noticeable when you're reading, and it's not even the 10th matter of importance. Infinitely more interesting is everything else. Take knowledge. Do you imagine, Bap asks, that men of genius, or let's say men of science, in history, walked around clear-headed, disenchanted, reasonable, with the tight-assed attitude of the science cultist and materialist? No. No great discovery, he writes, has ever been made by the power of reason. Rather, reason is a means of communicating discoveries to others. But the discoveries themselves, as I indicated when describing the true man earlier, are grasped suddenly in a specific state of mind akin to religious intoxication. Now, that's not trivial. It's crucial. What about understanding? When you understand something, he writes, I mean, you must see and feel it like you would a landscape you know from youth. How to navigate all its nooks, the different heights of earth, the banks of streams where the trees are and how it feels inside them. How long it takes walking from this or that group of beach to the abandoned factory so that the map is already in your body. This is the only way to really understand something. Now, this problem of knowledge and understanding, intuition and embodiment has nothing to do with proto-fascism or anything else that could be ascribed to BAP. It's a genuinely human problem. It's known that we're in something of an epistemological crisis. But it's not well considered that there are alternatives to modern rationalism that are not necessarily either classical rationalism or some sort of irrationalism. Bapp's examination of this issue shares certain affinities with Heidegger's, but that's not even fundamental. What matters is its truthfulness, usefulness, and promise. Take another example. A life of great and real joy or passion, Bapp writes, And let us frankly admit that the prospect of such a life deserves our attention, both personally and for its political and educational significance, is a life receptive to certain instincts and desires that come from nature, but that the modern lords of lies are terrified of, as he writes. Well, what is this natural receptivity, this enthusiasm that it is the entire purpose of modern education to suppress, according to Bapp? How well do we understand the oracular and telepathic dimension of human life? Or rather, why do we obviously not understand it at all? Oracles in nature are already rare enough, he writes. How many have been lost to us because they were misled by the snakes who seduced the oracle into thinking she should ape the snappy, chatty self-consciousness of the midget homosexual comedian? Well, that too is no trivial matter, even though he presents it with his typical style. Insight, understanding, the higher receptivity of the telepathic dimension of life, these are, I would say, genuine issues and questions for a contemporary political theory, political philosophy, or political theology. And Bap has raised them. It's a low and vicious hate crime to focus on his grammar instead. But wait, how can his mystical voodoo get a pass against the protestations of his critics? Must that mean that he's above all criticism and that everything he says gets a pass? Well, no, of course not. His account of the gays has some interesting and compelling aspects to it, but it's also crazy. Homos, as he puts it, are not, so far as I know, just hypersexualized whore males. And similarly, 
that dehumanizing artificial intelligence is certainly not the true messiah of the Jews or even of the Jews of the human spirit who allegedly hate life. As in the case of gays, Bap does make clear that, in his words, I shouldn't be imagined here or elsewhere I'm referring to all Jews or that this absolves non-Jews, remarking that the Judaizing tendency he talks about and criticizes is inherent to human nature and is very common also among non-Jews, his words. But still, even once he strikes it from the record, he can't really strike it from the ears of his readers when he mentions the Jewish hatred of beauty or Jewish retardation when it comes to anything visual. And he does talk positively about the camaraderie and friendship of the early Zionists, but many readers who presumably do not share the high tolerance for cases of mixed merit required to derive the most from this book might grab the take-home message that, quote, the creation of Israel is the most anti-Semitic act ever conceived, unquote, and run with it. And it's not just gays and Jews, obviously, either. And this all matters because most readers are not careful readers. And the deliberate contradictions that careful readers notice and diffuse remain ticking time bombs among the majority of careless readers. Deliberate contradictions in a certain give and take, where you say something and then strike it from the record, have the effect of absolving the writer of responsibility for a one-sided interpretation of his text, but we must not absolve ourselves of the responsibility to make sure that we understand both the dangerous and the comparatively innocuous aspects of the text. Understanding is the prerequisite for everything that might follow. Yet, not to be put off by the egregious and inflammatory utterances does not mean to embrace them and everything else wholeheartedly. Ultimately, this is a book that can teach you to read. It's also a book that should make you want to read more. There are allusions on the first page to Rousseau, Aristophanes, and Kant at least. By the second page, Heraclitus makes his appearance, Empedocles on his heels. You know the references to Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. Bapp also discusses Homer and Lawrence, Schmidt and Hegel, the Bible and Herodotus, Plato and Aristotle, Evola and Gwenon, Jung and Darwin, Celine and Heidegger. To evaluate his claims is to have read those other sources. The book therefore points beyond itself, not only in its project, but in what is required to make full sense of it. Of course, there's nothing to do with such a book but to denounce it, if not to burn it. Too many typos mar the presentation of what would otherwise be a pristine work of proto-fascism. The only way truly to take the sting out of a work like this is to teach it. Bronze Age Mindset is an underground book. The book itself shows the moderate ones how to own the underworld. It is not by descending into it.